As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode 145 is Jay Gonzalez, a multi-instrumentalist best known for his work as keyboardist for the Drive-By Truckers, which he joined in 2008. You're right now listening to Tough to Let Go from their latest album, The New OK. He's from New York. He was a band called Love Apple in the 1990s, moved to Athens and was in The Possibilities there. And then in a spinoff, Nutria, he joined the Truckers in 2008, been there for six albums. While he wrote and sang songs for some of those bands, his solo career started with Mess of Happiness 2012, then an EP in 2015, and... Now, 2021's Back to the Hive. We'll be talking about the title track of that album, then listening to the last two songs in the EP Bittersweet, 2015, and then Turning Me On from that 2012 debut, Mess of Happiness. And we'll conclude by listening to I Want to Hold You from the new album. For more information, please see jgonzalez.com. For more about this podcast, please look to nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And if you want to support the effort, go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. Not only can you avoid hearing me read ads, but you'll get my episode notes, which is lyrics, things I found interesting in the arrangements, some questions I use for the interview. And in this case, there's actually bonus footage, additional discussion that I had with Jay, just for the supporters. So I will have played a little of Tough to Let Go from the latest Drive-By Truckers album, the new OK 2020, as the intro, which is not one you wrote, but has a prominent keyboard part by you at the beginning. This is the reason why we're hooked up, because through that connection, you said you've been writing since you were 14, but have only within the last decade or so kind of emerged as a full-on solo recording artist, but still obviously a very useful sideman to have around. <laughs> I think that's my strong suit probably is being able to play off somebody's songs and just add little bits and pieces in there as opposed to sort of being able to sh improvise or shred over anything. I just, you know, I, I really like decorating the songs, but it's nice to also, you know, work on my own stuff and try to do it all together. Well, I see this may exemplify how useful you are <laughs> as a sideman that you have given me actual sheet music for the the songs that we're covering yeah i'm a nerd like that I, i you know i took piano lessons when i was a kid and, and i studied guitar in college and when i moved to athens right after school i just kind of promptly went back to doing everything completely by ear and then i started collecting like old sheet music and 
really enjoying just playing the chords, not necessarily playing the actual arrangements. But when I did the bittersweet, I thought it was a nice, I was also doing a Kickstarter thing. So it was a nice little extra thing. And then it, the minute I started getting into it, I realized that I was in over my head and I was amazed I could finish it. I, looking through it today, I realized there's a, already a few errors in there, but you know. So the bittersweet, that has actual keyboard parts as well as the melody. The stuff for the new album, it looks like you just wrote down the notes of the melody, which hardly anybody ever does because like people can remember the melody. Like you just listen to it and... <laughs> but that's like a lost... Like I'm kind of obsessed with going to library or like used bookstores and getting collections of like 1001 favorite songs of 1970s, you know, and, and then also like any kind of fake book. I love that because I prefer that I'm generally just going to read the chords and maybe the melody if I don't know the song. And a lot of times I'll to get inspired, I'll just pull out one of the many fake books I've collected and just try play through songs I don't actually know and see if I can kind of get it in there. But uh, I think it's a little easier just to do the the chords and the melody. And most people aren't going to play through the actual piano arrangement these days. I mean, I think I was taking piano lessons in 1980. I was at the tail end of that, probably, <laughs> if it was even a thing at that point, you know. <laughs> By the mid to late 80s, when I was having my first bands in high school, I thought, you always hear the stories of like, oh, yeah, I would just ear train from my records, which I did that too, of course. But like the first time I was in a band, I thought you had to, you know, I was coming out of orchestra and stuff and my piano player was coming out of piano lessons. So we ordered sheet music for the songs that we wanted to cover. I have sheet music for Benjamin Orr's Too Hot to Stop, the Cars solo spinoff project. Like, yeah, I mean, it's, that's it's weird. It's weird, but it's great. And I love, <laughs> I love classic sheet music is great with from the 30s and 40s with the great artwork. And then as it got into the 70s and just became more of like just taking the picture to suppress photo. And, and then at some point I'd like to do a, like an easy piano book too. Cause I had like the Billy Joel easy piano, you ah. know, where it's just like, Two mel, you know, the bass line and then the melody in the key of C. And my piano teacher was, was, she was really good, but she didn't teach me or I didn't, don't recall her teaching me. I also might have blocked it out, but sort of chord theory and one, four, five and like improvising or anything like that. And when my, my 15 year old kid took piano lessons a few years ago, the piano teacher, she'd just play like a, you know, a chord and, and then he'd give him the scale and he would just improvise and, and you could just see the excitement, you know, it's just like, oh, this is great. So I love the formality of music instruction. But at the same time, it's uh, and I think as I get older, I'm like, I try to I've written some horn charts for the truckers in the past that kind of got me back into it. And and in a way, I, I think this is a nice way to sort of just keep it also for myself so I can go back and <laughs> remember how to play these songs. <laughs> well, let's get to so this is the title track from the brand new record Back to the Hive 2021 which this, like many of the songs on here, is not completely keyboard-based. It has the country rock strumming acoustic thing sort of at its core. Is that sort of the other side of your... I, I guess you go back and forth on instruments when you're playing with truckers and other folks like that? Almost more than half the figuring out what to do is figuring out which of the two to sort of the song needs, you know. In the truckers, there's already two guitar players. So generally, I start off with keyboard unless it's not needed if it's a you know total rocker and I can't figure out some sort of swooping synth line or, or whatever to fill it up, I'll go to guitar. And then I try to go back and forth when I'm writing them to see which works best. This was definitely like a strummer, you know, rhythm playing. And on the recording, my friend Kevin Lane played the acoustic guitar and his brother Matt. I played with them in The Possibilities along with Chris Graham, the producer and engineer. And they played it and I played bass on this particular track. 
All right. Do you want to say a little about where you're at with this? So this is your second full album. The Bittersweet was sort of an EP in the middle of that. And you've done a few other releases. I want to say a little about where you're at with this album and the song that we're about to hear. Sure. I've we've been working on it for a little bit, but when the pandemic hit, we really were able to sort of focus on it and only this, you know, for months and finished it by the end of this past year and, and just self-releasing on Bandcamp on my own label. Yeah, and this is the title cut back to the hive. I So this is a nice little, it seems too easy to say Beatlesque, but it's such a nice, compact, I guess some almost Orbison-y harmonies in it. Sure. In particular, the coda, I always thought I was just 
lifting it directly from the love and spoonful maybe, but I think it's more the feel of that, like sort of, it switches to a swung feel and, and that kind of John Sebastian feel good thing. So it's more of a straight taut sort of feeling for the most of the song. And then it kind of just breaks into this feel good late sixties kind of thing. In the chorus, you know, before that later swing part, it sounds like it's opening up because you've had these kind of nasty B sus two chords. I, I think I just call them modal cutting off my right hand, sending it up north. And then it opens up into this. I'm happy to see that you're going, but I'm sad to see you go. But it actually does have a little bit in some of the note choices that sad to see, especially the first time you say see, it's sort of weirdly sustained so that when you can repeat it, it can be over the pretty chord. You're actually making it a little bit sad <laughs> in the happy part. Completely subconsciously, I'd imagine that I didn't think of that at the time, but I, you know, kind of learned to trust the subconscious with that. And I found looking back at stuff that it usually it ends up maybe it's just repetition when I sing about, you know, the melody goes up and down. I think it's just the way it goes. But yeah, there's that B sus suspended thing has that weird sort of farfisa angular thing and just holding that tension throughout it. I always thought it was kind of a Burt Bacharach kind of nanner, 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 like, but uh, not as smooth as Burt would have done it, you know? <laughs> well, and it's got even before, so I guess that really weird Farfisa thing doesn't come into the second verse when you're doing that. But even in the first verse, it kind of answers with this little claves or, you know, it has a little kind of tango thing just for like two measures there. It's like Yeah, it's just a little response kind of thing uh, with like a, a swish and a clave click, you know. It was Chris's idea to, to kind of hold off and bring it in later the second time. And it really kind of adds it a little more tension for the second time. I, we definitely try to do that a bit, hold stuff off as long as possible and then give some little surprises. But yeah, it's interesting because it comes in and then it, the percussion thing happens the first time and then it doesn't repeat it as the second half of that section. So again, that was just the way it happened. But looking back, it's, you know, I think it kind of works. It's just instead of beating it to death, it just sort of just have a little peek at something and pops out. Now, just the way that the verses are articulated, like the first verse, the words are very much connected with the rhythm that you're singing it, mm -hmm. right? I know, pause, I may not show it, but I thought you ought to know. It's like cutting off my right hand, sending it up north. Whereas the second verse, it's your uh, pause, homing, like, right. You wouldn't put a pause there if you were just saying that. So what's the order of operations there? I mean, I like the overall effect, but some of the lines there, your sonar screaming wrong. Like, I don't think until I saw it written down, I even could kind of hear what was being said because it was sort of sacrificing the meaning to the melody. Yeah, I tend to do that. I don't think I wrote the melody before the... I think a lot of times I end up writing the first verse and the chorus and then coming back and finishing it. I'm sure that's what happened with this. It's been... This is an old one, probably 2000 five or six or something like that. And the, and this album has, you know, I Want to Hold You is like 20 years old, if not older. And then the last instrumental, Rosa, is less than a year old. So it wasn't an intentional spanning thing, but it was it was almost like picking songs that I'd never really recorded or maybe demoed and wanted to try to match Chase the Demo kind of thing. But for this one, yeah, the second verse, I think I was just trying to match the template of the first verse. But there was a, a little bit of a pause just to make the lyric fit. It's more important for the the melody and the lyric to scan musically 
then makes sense, I guess. You know, it's that alliteration sonar screaming wrong. It's just like, oh, wow. It's- well, you got the nice slide on wrong there. I love those melismas that jump pretty far, fifth or whatever, you know. <laughs> I wanted to call attention to, I think it's the second time the chorus happens. Just that one note piano thing. I love as a little overdub. Dun, 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 dun. I call it the submarine, especially when it's on a, like the sonar thing. It's on the Wurlitzer. And I've, man, I use that trick more often than I'd like to admit with the truckers and with older songs of mine. But there's something about having that pedal point up high kind of that just, uh, I think it's, it's actually on Need You Round as well, the later song on the album, but that's on the other side of the album. So it's okay. But there's a tension there and a focus that while everything's moving around underneath it. So you said Kevin was playing this, uh, acoustic guitar solo that comes in after that. Is that right? Well, he played the acoustic rhythm part. Okay. I ended up doing that on a, like on a nylon string, trying to do a, you know, and I love her kind of. Yeah, that was the part that sounded the most beatly to me. I was a little surprised that you kind of let the verse go its full length because it's tense there for a while. And for the nice little, and I love her, like I, I'd have to go back, but I feel like probably even it would be typical for a Beatles song that does that to contract it. You've gotten the idea. <laughs> Move along. I can't go back and edit it now. What am I going <laughs> to? It's already mastered. <laughs> but yeah, it goes throughout the whole thing. An example that of another one that goes even longer than that is Gilbert O'Sullivan's, what is the what, his big hit? Oh, Alone Again Naturally. I think it's Big Jim Sullivan does the nylon string solo and it goes through the whole verse and it's even longer than this. And it's like, it is one of those things you're like, ah, it's a little long, but I, you know, I can hang with it, you know, and especially there's something about like an electric guitar, you can sustain it and you can do vibrato and stuff. But it's like with that nylon, it's just like, you got to keep picking it. Otherwise it just dies out. It's of course a very nicely constructed solo and it retains that tastefulness but given that you had that extra length i like i think if i were recording this i would feel nervous about that and like oh let's uh when we repeat it the second time let's overdub an octave or you know just like do something to stack it to kind of yeah if you're gonna have tension then build it there it's doubled an octave up at the very last run I'm sure at that point I was like, what can I do to make this? It's only on the very last phrase and it's mixed kind of low, but it was just like, it's got to pick up somewhere. And then we finally have this coda back to the bustle to the howl of the hive where you go all swing, but it's just quarter notes to start with. You know, we're just going to tramp through it. And then what was your feeling? Well, you call this final chord C triangle. What is that? (laughs) What does that even mean? That's, you know, some fake books will use that. I think it's frowned upon because <laughs> F triangle, with, you know, or whatever, but I uh, see triangle. But yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's that real just happy 60s spoonful sounding chord. Was it spoonful that was influencing the choice of harmony vocal notes? Like this is a kind of a very specific, you know, not Beatlesy dissonance through some of it. I mean, yeah, they did some harmony stuff like that. And yeah, I guess so. I mean, with the maybe har- in the last couple albums. Yeah, yes. when it, yeah, they sort of fleshed stuff out a lot later on. But yeah, I mean, that's what I was thinking from the get go with that section and the drums like Matt Lane plays. He's got this great behind the beat feel and the swinging on it and the fills. It's just like 
I think it's a lot like modern drummers don't really have that as much these days. That sort of like, you know, all the drummers in the 60s doing rock stuff grew up with sort of like early rock and roll where it was swing and, and then hearing sort of jazz and R&B where it's not as metronomic, you know, it's just more of a circular feel. And he really nails it on that. And why is a pigeon going back to a hive? <laughs> yeah, that's that's called a... Uh, Mixed metaphors, I believe. I mean, it's that's a, an example of um, maybe editing would have been a good... It's a friend of mine moved back to New York, you know, and he's going back to the hive. And again, that's the second verse where it's like, I think I beat the, the bee imagery to death with it, you know. So your friend is your right hand that you're sending up north? Is that what you mean? Okay. Yeah, he's he's the guy. He's the not I'm cutting off my ear. Not that kind of sentiment. No, 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 no. It's like, it's like we work together on music all the time and he's going home, but it's, it's tough. We're all from up in New York, you know, and I moved here with a, with a band in the mid nineties and three of us ended up sticking around the general area and he moved back to New York. Uh, Cause he's probably the only true New Yorker of us all, you know, he really he grew up near the city and in the city and we were all suburbanites and Long Islanders and Buffalo people and stuff. So. I want to stop for a minute for some sponsor messages, the first of which is, of course, about Masterclass, where you can learn from the world's best minds anytime, anywhere, at your own pace. You can learn about science from Neil deGrasse Tyson, conservation from Jane Goodall, journalism from Bob Woodward, cooking from Gordon Ramsay, photography, interior design, business strategy. The list goes on, including, of course... Over a dozen music classes from folks ranging from Alicia Keys and St. Vincent to Itzhak Perlman and Danny Elfman. My most recent experience with Masterclass was listening to the entirety of Aaron Sorkin teaches screenwriting for a pretty much pop episode I was recording, which not only was hugely useful for that endeavor, but there's always things that I learn from courses like this about constructing a piece of entertainment about people's attention spans, about how to construct a narrative, lessons that help for good songwriting. I took in that course as a purely audio experience. You can choose that as an option or video. Listen to it double speed, and I did the whole thing in an evening. So you can do it that way, or you can do it the way I've done some of the music classes, where you use the downloadable lesson recaps and supplemental materials, where you use the ability to chat with other folks that are experiencing the class where I stream it to the TV to share with my family. Whatever you're interested in, and at whatever level, there's a master class for you with 100-plus exclusive classes taught by the masters you love. So I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every master class. And as a nakedly examined music listener, you get 15% off an annual membership. Go to masterclass.com slash examined. That's masterclass.com slash examined for a 15% off master class. I also want to tell you about the Nebbia by Moen Spa Shower. Now, I don't know about you, but the shower is one of my favorite places to be. I stand in there and think, and this can waste water. And with an ordinary shower, really, it's my back that is hot, and I kind of have to keep shuffling around. But with the Nebbia by Moen Spa Shower, you use 45% less water, and yet, and yet, the spray is 81% more powerful than the competition by atomizing the water, this cutting-edge shower head heats up the environment of your shower. The whole thing feels like a spa, thus the name. It was designed by brilliant people who used to work for Tesla, NASA, and Apple. It is a truly luxurious experience, well-designed. It moves up and down, has four different finishes. It has a little wand you can use to wash your feet. This could be a really nice thing to install for Mother's Day. 
And as I said, there's a lot of water savings. You can actually calculate your savings on their website, and you'll see that it pays for itself in less than a year. It is easy to install. There are good instructions and video to just walk you right through it. They have great support. The Nebbia by Moen Spa Shower starts at just $199. And for Naked League Exam music listeners, we have a deal for you. The first 100 people to use the code NEM at Nebbia.com will get 15% off all Nebbia products. That's not just the shower, but they have very cool shower curtain made from recycled water bottles. They have a bath mat made from reclaimed cotton, sustainable shower shelves, hooks, etc. Nebbia rarely does deals like this, so this is a great deal to jump on. Go to nebbia.com slash N-E-M. That's N-E-B-I-A dot com slash N-E-M to check out what they have to offer. The first 100 people to use the code N-E-M while checking out will save 15% off all Nebbia products. That's nebbia.com slash N-E-M. Use that code N-E-M to save 15%. Let's get back to it. Well, let's get the second song out there, or rather songs. You had picked ampersand, pound, uh, ampersand, dollar sign, percent. (laughs) Yeah, I can't even. You sing it, so people can learn it that way. I could probably remember it. It should have been called Powerfully Bitter is is what it would have been better, but I just was being a a dick. Typing swear words on the internet is the point. Yes, basically. Yeah, exactly. But that was so short. So this is from Bittersweet 2015, which is an actual suite of five short songs 13 minutes total. So we're actually going to hear the last two of them, this ampersand one. And then I just suggested at the last minute, let's go into the finale, Shinorock Rock Lane, which really popped for me just as I was sort of listening in the background. There were just things about the, uh, yeah, when that, I don't want to say the head, but the title, when you actually say the name of the song sure, and it spins out, you know, sort of as a thing that ends up being the closer, there's just something very powerful and spooky about that. So I wanted to go ahead and extend this, you know, from a two minute song to a five minute song, which it's still, yeah, still short. But this is nearly half of the suite. Do you want to say a little about the suite and these portions of it? They're obviously musically very related. It doesn't seem thematically, they're obviously related. I did listen to the whole suite today in a row just to kind of get the feeling. It didn't jump out to me as a thematically lyrically unified thing is that yeah i think it's a little less like a quick one while he's away by the who where it's like a disconnected or, or any sort of like rock opera or and more again the beatles but like you know the abbey road kind of second side like it was five separate songs that i had and i just tried to figure out what order to put them in and then you know took the introduction at the beginning and tacked it on at the end to try to you know make it as cohesive as possible and these two songs, out of all five of them, are in the same key and they share similar tonalities and not vibes. I mean, one is very upbeat and angry and then the other one's kind of resigned and sad, which have a tendency to end albums on that note.
Yeah, so this starts off, I guess the interesting thing is a, a suite. I was sort of listening, when I was listening to it, the whole thing straight, I'm like, okay, is it going to be the fast song, then the slow song, then the fast song or something, you know, like a classical suite would be. Sure. But no, there's actually movement within all of them. They're actually more, all more like show tunes, but with the same kind of shifts that we even had in Back to the Hive, that we had this almost a separate song smacked on as the coda here. So yes, this starts fast, but by the time it gets to the chorus, it's like weary. It's... <laughs> <laughs> it is about, you know, the sort of internet troll kind of mentality, you know, and, and yeah, instead of yelling the cuss words, it's just a little more, yeah, resigned. Then at the end, I think that's what led me to lead it into Shinarok Lane, which has that same tempo. I think the whole suite is more of a medley or an overture to a show or something than a, an actual suite. I just can't resist a pun. And I think, you know, of course, there's a few bitter suites out there. If you're talking about internet trolls, I'm satirizing other people, but I I hear it's in the first person. It does sound like it's hard to control that. I mean, it was definitely something I dealt with personally, but it's easier to put yourself in the first person to kind of see where they're coming from a little bit. You okay, know? so you've just been on the receiving end of this. I don't know, maybe it's sort of a, a beginner thing. 
whenever you happen to get introduced to the internet or a new form of the internet, that at least once it's hard not to be tempted to respond or say something that later you were like, who is that actually for? That benefited no one. <laughs> no, it's it's just this like feedback loop of the negativity, you know, and, and you see it now politically, especially and stuff. And in particular, you know, drive-by truckers, fairly open political band at this point. And sometimes it's just amazing what some folks will say on fa- on the Facebook. You know, it's always don't read the comments. There's that moment of trying not to engage and the anger. And then you're like, I'm going to type this. And fortunately, my wife's usually there and she's like, it's not just don't do it. If you communicate through messaging personally, the minute it's like out in the open in front of people, it tends to sink pretty fast into nastiness and stuff. So, But why would you be, if somebody's complaining about the drive-by truckers being too liberal or something, they're not going to be like, and the keyboardist. That's an example of mostly just what I see. <laughs> I mean, you know, we, we had a Black Lives Matter poster on the organ since 2016, that tour. And because it's on the organ, I would often get confronted about it. And I don't feel like it needs to be explained or rationalized. It's what we believe. And when that would happen in person, it was always like, so I was just curious. Like, it wasn't like this, like, I can't believe you just hear the clacking of the keys. You know, when someone's in their basement or whatever, typing away, it's so much easier to be just nasty, you know? And that's the other thing. It's the sort of anonymity of it. It's happened forever. I'm sure publications and stuff like that, newspapers and But I mean, with the internet, it's just so easy to do. It's like forums. I love like guitar forums and nerdy sort of music forums and stuff. But it's just like everybody's got an opinion and they know exactly what's right about it. And I think it was I was, you know, I was typing on the computer, writing the lyrics and was just like the bridge. I was just trying to fit it in as many (laughs) stupid puns, you know, like barring, you know, space bar, like just trying to fit every since I already got the ampersand dollar sign percent at pound exclamation point in the chorus. I was like, well, why not space bar like spacing out and keeping tabs and stuff like that? It was just like, this was way more for being such a personal song. It was a very like almost Broadway sort of had a certain form to it, you know? I think that's one of the most desirable skills. Like I can fake keyboards. I have one behind me on my own recordings. But what I don't know how to do easily is turn a melody like you were just singing into a really damn cool, you know, two to three note harmony thing that has that classic. Is this a Rhodes? It's a Honer Pianet. It's like with the zombies used on um, She's Not There and all the early stuff. That sort of sound, it's a little brighter than a Wurlitzer, so it kind of fit. There's almost like a piano-y brightness to it. Well, it's got that nice kind of static on the attack or the release or something that makes but it sound But that's why I love old. that. I've been obsessed <laughs> with that sound forever. It's on, you know, it's on the Help album. Thank God you're going to lose that girl. And These Eyes by the Guess Who. It's like, and Chris, my buddy I work with, founded one up there in Brooklyn. And the basis of this whole album was supposed to be, you know, to be performed by our band without having like a bunch of overdubs. So it's like, I think it's pan to the right, the keyboard, and then it's just one guitar to the left and one to the right, bass and drums for the majority of it. And then there's some overdubs, but just so I could play it live with a band back when you could play live with a band. And we did it. We we played it about two or three shows like straight through and never fell apart. It's fun to play. You just got to make sure you're, you're ready for it before it starts. So I think that just knowing how to, without thinking of it, (laughs) that that's like one of the early keys, a secret sauce to becoming like the useful sideman keyboard player is just to be able to take any given melody and, oh yeah, sure, I can just, I don't have to write out anything. I can add a couple extra fingers and... (laughs) The keys just have your pinky on like either the octave or the fifth and then play underneath it. There's always like that sort of pedal point. 
But the other thing is, you know, it's basically whenever I do that kind of piano playing, I'm ripping off Floyd Kramer and then all the guys that I love from the 60s and 70s, like Nicky Hopkins and, and Elton John and Billy Joel, all those guys, that slip piano thing where you slip up to the third or the sixth from the five in like, that's just mimicking the bending on a guitar, basically, or sliding up. Just listen to like every Floyd Kramer song and it makes sense all of a sudden. Even the theme to Dallas, if you can do it, <laughs> if you can sit through it. Is there a particular thing that you were like, okay, I'm channeling this in just in the... I'm so powerful I just can't control. This one, I really felt like it was like an early Joe Jackson band kind of thing, because it's real stripped down, especially in the chorus part. But yeah, that sort of pompous, bombastic thing. I think it's simultaneously hilarious, but also I really do feel it. Like when I listen to you, I, I hear the music, you know, the Dand of Tommy, when it goes into that section, I still like get chills, you know, and the story, you know, it's not so much about the story. It's just the feel that majestic thing that the Who had in particular, and a lot of power pop bands kind of really lifted that. I can't seem to help but do that. <laughs> Well, I like that the bass retains that rhythm in the choruses, even though we're not being bombastic anymore. It still has boom, boom. Were you playing bass on this one or did you kind of dictate that rhythm? I was. I played bass on this one. This one I kind of demoed in Pro Tools with like a click and like I programmed all the clicks to speed up and slow down and everything. This is like too much of the how the sausage is made. It's But it's because you wanted to just sound like a live thing. And then we went and recorded my friend Joe Rowe playing drums like straight through it in the studio and then re-recorded all the parts to fit on top. But so as most of it, Chris plays some fuzz guitar. But I played a lot of this. This was definitely more of a sort of a trying to be Emmett Rhodes or Todd Rundgren or something or McCartney, where it's like it was written by coming up with all the parts at home. So I assume Shannon Rock Lane was not added to this later. Once I had the five songs, I just remember writing them down and then like writing the numbered order next to it, playing them through and seeing. But, you know, the connected things like there's a little connected walk up part going into Almond Eyes, but it's like a da, 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 da. yeah, the second song going in. Yeah, the second song going in the third song, there's this like walk up slow down thing. And that was, you know, there's definitely some sort of manufactured connectors going on. But I think, you know, it's so natural to go from Powerfully Bitter into Shenorak Lane because it just ends on that the same rhythm. And then it just quiets down even more to a sort of solo keyboard. But then clearly thematically, like you've moved on to a different thing with one of these Penny Lane-ish like story of old people in a house and then, you know, family domestic. Totally. And it was connected in the sense that it all happened at the same time, going to my grandfather's funeral and, and all this drama was happening back home. And so it's like, you know, in my head, it all makes sense, but it certainly leaves a lot for interpretation. Having this, what is this, in 6-8? It probably evens out to 4-4 four, four when you're done. <laughs> I think it's like two bars of three and then a two, like a bump, bump. And that's cutting off that one little beat helps move it forward. But it really, again, I don't think it was something I counted. Throwing a two, four bar in there, usually it's like, it's just a way to shorten the boring chunk in between. It's almost like a Latin kind of thing, like the bup, 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 like I want to live in America kind of, you know, that sort of thing, which, you know, Springsteen got from like Aaron Copeland. And I love that real rhythmic thing that happened kind of mid-century, 20th century. Right. So then we have the fast version of that pretty soon after that, I think, so the, the bridge, 57 seconds. Found it behind the cabinet door. He won't be here. 
Okay, actually not that much faster, but still growing. We've added some drums and things, kind of using that to build tension. I mean, it's not the live in America because that has to be the thing that you're staying on, right? That's the dance point. Whereas this is more like we're adding something to raise a little tension and then we're going to go back down to something more ordinary rhythmically. It's definitely using that sort of military drumbeat to build up the tension. You know, it might still have the same rhythm if, or maybe I changed it a little bit, but then it, it's definitely building up the tension that much more just to have that release of that next instrumental section. Yeah. So is that a accordion or something? It's overdubbed melodica, you know, the, oh, yeah. Okay. The piano you blow into and, and it's, uh, it's basically a small accordion. Yeah, I was trying to, again, think of like things that I could easily bring on stage and do, you know, and I, when we had an, enough folks, you know, my friend Peter Alvinos, he do all the sort of supplemental percussion and that and everything. And so it's, it's while well, we kind of held down the, the rhythm parts and stuff. But yet at the very end of the song, you introduce what this like extra circus organ or something overdug and the spooky theremin sound that was at the beginning of the, the whole suite comes back. So you could do that even in the live setting. That was part of that plan or that was. I think we had. I mean, I think we were like super technical at that point and like mm. by having like an iPad with, you know, a free looping system. So I had someone hitting the loops and we may have skipped it in certain performances, but I think it's it was easy enough to just loop that. And the only thing is it's in a different key from the beginning. So had to have two loops, you know, I'm glad I figured it out before we kind of tried it. But uh, yeah, that's a sob. You know, Athens back in the day with bands like Neutral Milk Hotel, Julian Coster played the saw. And that was the first time I had heard anybody playing the musical saw and, and just kind of blew my mind. And so I kind of started trying to learn it, you know, and it's it's again, it's like almost as hard as a theremin, I'd imagine, just because you can't see where it's going and you have to kind of find the pitch. But when you double track it like that, it kind of gives it a little leeway. And and so I just that's from another song completely. And I just cut it and it kind of happened to fit in. I like the idea of like sampling your own stuff so you don't have to pay for anything. <laughs> well, let's talk about that central chorus thing. Let me just play it. 41 seconds. Is it introduced a second keyboard here or you're just playing them two keyboards with different hands? The piano part, the electric piano part is doing the sort of eighth notes, the driving thing. And then I bring in a, it's like a Hammond B3, but like more of that circusy kind of setting where you have like all the draw bars pulled out, but maybe halfway or something. And so it has this real rich sort of the Leslie speaker is spinning fast and it has like the vibrato on it. It's just like everything literally all stops pulled out and doing a sort of repetitive arpeggio thing over it. I knew it was going to be kind of repeating this and fading. So I was like trying to think of how many things we can throw on there without it getting too cluttered, you know, and then the backup vocals kind of come in and respond. Just that initial, the lead vocal line, shall not lay, this crashing wave thing that is sort of the, you know, the thing that made my ears perk up initially. Was that the center first part of the song that was written or was that just like a happy accident that you were able to have it developed that way? It wasn't one of the first things that came out. I kind of knew it was going to be a repeating thing just on the title. I'm saying this like I can remember. I mean, this is <laughs> five, six years ago. I can't remember yesterday, but back to the hive of the song we played earlier. I mean, I put a code on. I'm a fan of sort of like having a slightly different thing at the end or, or you know, repeating. And then also, you know, sort of a sweeping I love sweeping melodies, you know, like Sleepwalk or something like that. I, you know, is trying to do a, it certainly has like kind of a wistful, melancholy thing going on, you know, as it fades out because it's a sad song. So it seemed logical to do that. 
comparing that in my head to other songs that where the chorus is again like a phrase that is repeated but that's the thing that's supposed to be the release of tension not this nice wistful waves on like it's really hard to get a good song like that i i feel like i have a lot of albums from the 80s where there's at least one song that's now my mind is going to spinal tap sex farm where i think that sex farm hell or just like okay but this one is like chock full of stuff even though it only has the one line you're not only moving that around but you've got this really kind of busy answering part on the keyboard which then you do fill with background vocals later in the song so there's plenty of musical material there you're not just relying on this being a hook it's so repetitive i mean it's the exact same thing over and over again that it's like yeah there needed to be some window dressing in my head anyway i mean i probably i tend to kind of overdo it with that stuff i think in ways i like counter melodies more than melodies but it's uh that might be the being a side guy sort of job that i have i sort of do that a lot but yeah it just seemed to be the way to go with this and and you know have a slow fade and then bring back the soft synthy <laughs> sounding thing slow fade so repetitive such excess we've reached three minutes and nine seconds what a sprawling epic this is <laughs> That's the other thing is I like to do epic stuff in a really short amount of time. I mean, I've been starting to work on like music for commercials lately. And it's like it took it, you know, trying to fit everything into 30 seconds was a nightmare at first. But now it's like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Like, it's just there and then it's gone. You know, the whole album, not this one, this is 13 minutes, but the new album is 11 songs and it's 29 minutes, I think, total. So, you know, I'm definitely as I get older, sort of cut out the fat and just does it need a guitar? So, you know, it's in the past. It was like every song had a guitar. solo. <laughs> I remember reading some interview with Steve Winwood or something, and this is like 1991, you know, as he was in the middle of his resurgence of hits and saying, oh, yeah, audiences are getting more sophisticated. Now, you don't have to repeat the chorus so many times. I don't know if that's true. <laughs> I don't like as far as my personal listening, you know, I like this concise kind of thing. But it is the case that your albums are immediately appealing, but like a lot of pop music, don't really sink in their talons until you've spun it three times or whatever. And I don't know if having more repetitions within a song gets you around that or it just makes it more irritating the first time people hear it when they still are not open to it. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I mean, if you just go back through the top 40 lists, most hit songs tend to be pretty short. And I do think there's something that's just making you come back with an earworm and so much of making a good song slash record slash performance is like, you know, knowing when to stop, you know, how long do I need this overdub? How long does it need to be? Do we need this section? It's like the writing of the initial material is is important, obviously, but it's like anything. I think the editing is something I've gotten better at, not just being lazy and letting stuff go, but just making sure every part, <laughs> if it's going to be there, it needs to be doing something, you know? Well, like the back to the bustle to the howl of the hive, like that is a catchy chorus, yet it's used as a coda. You know, I wrote a lot of very short songs early on. At some point, I made a little jump to, I want to have this extra structure. So I'll do verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, second chorus. And that's the really catchy one. But then I want to then do at least another like solo and have the catchy chorus again, or maybe back to a verse again, just, and it ends up being five or six minutes. Like you can't, if you're going to have all that structural material and you want it, you know, let people solo over it and let it go, then it's going to add up. Yeah, it really is. And it's like, if you like with Steve Winwood, low spark of high heel boys, I love, and that's long and, you know, and stretches out for sections, but it works. You know, if you're going to have a song be six minutes, that has to 
fill out the space without just repeating all these sections. And it's just, you know, that song, it's like has such a slow tempo and slow rollout of information that it kind of works. It's for some reason, I'm obsessed with getting stuff out really fast and then getting out of there. You know? Well, I feel this has all been a very good prologue to the third song, Turning Me On, from your first full solo album, 2012's Mess of Happiness. Can you say a little about because this is really we will hit you with this lick and we'll keep hitting you with this lick and you're going to like it. <laughs> and it's very self-consciously the song that even the lyrics are about that, basically. Yeah, it's a little ridiculous. I mean, it might say it 40 times in the song. I counted it <laughs> once just to see the gall I had to repeat it that many times. This is the song that I probably play the most off of that album and seems to be that amongst my friends and family that quote unquote hit. It is. It's about thanks for turning me on to this song. It's like that feeling of someone playing you a record or CD or, you know, sending you a link and just having your mind blown. It's like it doesn't happen often that a song someone sends you, especially nowadays where you can just like copy a link and send it on the text. But like sometimes, you know, a whole new world is just opened up to you. If it's a relationship with a person that doesn't last your whole life, you always have that song.
So we, we get the head right up front. We get the chorus, but then these verses end up being this big swelling. I don't know. This sounds more wings than <laughs> like you're, you're thinking more early seventies than sixties at this point with these kind of moves. I mean, I grew up in the eighties really, but I, you know, was formative early years was, I'm sure hearing silly love songs or something on that. You know, I mean, I, I remember asking my mom when I was five or six, like, you know, that song, someone's knocking on the door, somebody's ringing the, like, is that the Beatles? And she's like, no, it's not. And then years later, I found, you know, it's not the Beatles, but it's wings, you know, and I was just like, oh my God. I just love that sort of lush seventies, you know, ELO thing. I like the turnaround in the middle of that. Is that two distinct guitars? Yeah, that's some guitar harmony that's not quite, you know, it's not like a Thin Lizzy thing, but it's certainly from growing up and hearing, the, you know, those kind of bands playing guitar harmony. But yeah, it's like fuzzy harmony guitars. Yeah, I just like that. It's again, it's easy to do something like that. That's two beats long. But we got a whole a full measure here that we're going to kind of do this ricocheting thing. And you better keep dancing during this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's walking up too. It's got that weird chromatic walk up. Not weird, but that almost Nielsen. It's almost like pre rock and roll kind of thing, you know, and, yeah. and I think that motion moving up. I think the sort of sting of those fuzz guitars is, keeps it from being t- maybe too pretty or too hokey or something. Well, just the fact that you have complete stops of everything. Right. That also, like, as much as the main riff sounds like it could be the hit single, I'm not at least thinking offhand of a lot of, like, giant radio songs that have multiple, the entire band stops. <laughs> and, like... Dramatic, man. It's, I, you know, I just, I love that if it works. For every one that makes it into the song is all, you know, trying to all these different tricks that you just slowly edit out as well. If you're doing your job right, you know, which I don't always do, but it's Chris really, you know, is, he's sort of like the quality tester. If I can pass it by him, it's going to be good, you know, and it's always that trying to make it as stripped down as possible, even when there is a lot going on, making sure it's not cluttered. Yeah, no, that takes a while to do, but I like that verse because it's the tonality, the chord progression is such a different feeling than the happy swingy chorus you know so this is chris Rowe, your drummer not no no i'm sorry chris grand the um he he mixed this and guitarist and producer co-producer and he mixes everything and records everything so it was a demo solo album so mess of happiness ended up becoming an album but i just gotten out of a band and was playing with the truckers and stuff so at some point i asked for his help to sort of turn it into real tracks and and he did wonders with the drum sound, you know, on that. And it helped out a lot making it sound cohesive. Cause at that point, like now I have like a, a friend's real Gretsch drum kit, but at that point I had like a side marching drum and a China cymbal hanging from a string on this, you know, it's just really bad sounds and stuff. Really just thinking it was going to be demos. And, uh, you know, I'm glad it, it didn't come out like just the way I recorded it. So he's playing those fake harmonized guitars. Not on that. This is all kind of me just because it was like a home demo kind of thing. But he's the one who like cleaned up the drum sound and helped everything and really mixed it and really suggested taking stuff out, cleaning it up and stuff. So it was sort of the mixing and final versions are infinitely better than the way I started out. I've gotten better over the years. It's sort of getting decent, clean sounds to send to him. But every project I've done, you know, he's been a partner. Well, and I like what that guitar does as you get into the second verse. Is that like an actual backwards guitar? <laughs> it might be backwards. I, th- I, can't, I can't remember if I flipped it, but it's a fuzz guitar going through like 
my uncle gave me, uh, he had bought back in the 60s, a guitar from the back of a comic book. And the guitar, it's, you know, guitar is about a foot high. I'm sure the picture was amazing. And it's like unplayable. The amp was this three inches by five inches with fake wood wallpaper on the, you know, instead of on card, it was all cardboard. And, you know, and it's 40 years old or something. And it's just freaked out and all that. Everything's dried out in it. And so it does this crazy thing where you hold a note and it's, jumps around and does these weird noises. So that's what that is. And all those fuzz guitars are through that. So it's not actually a pedal or a fuzz thing effect. It's like this little tiny amp just wanting to die, you know, just please stop using me kind of thing, which now I can't get it to work anymore. So it kind of swells, in, or it's not swells, but it swoops into the uh, second verse, I guess. Yes, and I'm surprised that it works toward the end of it. It's such a carefully orchestrated walk down the first time, you know, singing along with this very exposed piano thing. And the fact that then you repeat it with this kind of just going over it. And yet it's, you know, it's mixed well enough that it's fine. (laughs) It's one of those things that might not do it these days. I might be like, oh, well, it doesn't need that. But it's like, I think I enjoyed this sort of like loose, fun. The prettier the song, the more you got to kind of balance it out with nastiness, you know, to not get too sweet or sugary, you know which it ends up doing anyway, but uh, <laughs> it's all a matter of balance, you know. The arrangement is a big part of it. In the very early days of MP3s, not all MP3s would play correctly on all MP3 players. And a guy that had been my co-frontman in a past band sent me, we would do some goofy psychedelic stuff, but he sent me this really nice piano ballad, but it had this like, like kind of crackling throughout. I'm like, that is a really interesting choice. Like, no, it just was the MP3 yeah. <laughs> fucking up. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. So you I remember don't CDs, know CD, scratch CDs used to do like real interesting rhythmic thing. Oh, this is really fascinating. And it's just like, I think I was listening to like a friend was playing me Fugazi and I'm like, that's an interesting riff. And it, and it was just like skipping forward over the same riff. It was like, <laughs> oh man, this is, you know, it's, a, it's amazing how random shit can be interesting. Let's close out here with another one from the new album. You've released three singles for it. I Want to Hold You. You were saying this is a 20-year-old song. It's one of those ones where maybe it wasn't until the third time that I heard it that it was really like, oh, this is kicking my ass. I got (laughs) to... Yeah, I mean, it's kind of innocuous. I mean, it's a real simple, strummy kind of thing. And it's just the three verses, just there's nothing really tricky about the layout or anything like that. I think I decided to put that one first because that's the one, again, like friends and family seem to react to that one the most. You know, it's embarrassing going back because lyrically, you know, I would change some stuff. But I think it's got a nice quality to it that I can kind of handle. <laughs> Still sing it. Have you emptied out the chamber? For the, it sounds like some of these songs were quite old. Is there still like another two albums worth of stuff that you're... Oh, yeah. No, yeah. There's always a bunch of songs, you know. I've been I've been writing. A friend of mine, Pete Smith, wrote the lyrics to uh, t- two of the songs on here. He wrote all the lyrics to You Make It Hard to Be Unhappy. And I just wrote the music to that. And that's kind of a Everly Brothers duet that I sing with Chris. And then the other song is Never Felt Bad About Feeling Good. And he wrote the lyrics to that. So, but he, he and I have about 35 songs we've written together. And he, you know, he's primarily a lyricist and he sends me PDFs. And then I just send them to music. And it's a very like, you know, what I would imagine sort of Elton getting pile of paper from Bernie top. You know, that's in my head, that's what I'm doing, you know, or, or a more traditional singer songwriter lyricist tin pan alley kind of thing and he's just great it's uh we're gonna have a whole album you know gonzalez smith 
is coming up, but this was, you know, these songs fit with this so well that I had to kind of, you know, work them in. And, and so it really, and it also brings it up to date to me, you know, it's not all old songs. So really it's like, it spans the, <laughs> the last 20 years. Just, you know, there's always extra songs that don't work and stuff. And even ones that there was probably four or five other songs that were going to be on here that just got cut or switched around as new ones came in. So, you know, it's tough. I used to think albums were just whatever you wrote at that time. And, and I'm sure it is. But, you know, it's important to like keep on for this other project or if it's just, you know, even if it's a good song, it doesn't have the right vibe. It doesn't fit with the other ones. You know, you want it to kind of flow. So. So he was in the pre-Truckers bands with you, joined the Possibilities with you and then Nutria. Is that right? Or no? Who is this? Oh, Chris was. Pete Smith is a, he's another dude. Yeah. I just, I met him a few years ago and he, he's a, he's a producer over at Adult Swim and he came up with the Brack show and he worked on Space Ghost Coast to Coast. And he also did a, it's like one of those weird things. My, my brother-in-law is friends with his daughter and we met and talked and he was surprised that I knew so much about the music from the sixties, fifties and sixties. And his daughter, as we were leaving that night, from hanging out said you need to get his album and i'm like oh yeah everybody's got an album you know but then i went and looked it up and it's he did a an album with gary mcfarland in the early 70s called butterscotch rum and my mind was blown it's like this soft pop masterpiece and he wrote all the lyrics and sang on it and so uh we just kind of hung out and talked music and would have dinner and stuff and then one day he sent me a song lyric and we kind of haven't stopped from there you know I was working on one last night. So I really enjoy that, like sort of just having the skeletons of really good lyrics and something that he's, he writes some of the music in certain songs, but like primarily he just writes, he's focusing on this, he's a storyteller and it's just great to have like that to start with and then try to figure out how to set it musically. All right. Well, we will look for that or I will link to anything that is existent or, you know, those particular songs. Yeah, for sure. Thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, thanks so much, Mark. I appreciate it, man. This is, uh, I enjoy the show and really excited to nerd out. <laughs> All right, here's I Want to Hold You. I want to hold you. I want to hold you till you come. I want to fold you up like origami and hold you in my
Thanks so much to Jay. That was a really fun discussion. I really appreciate his interest in the podcast, his engagement with the project. And of course, his songs are wonderful. And he doesn't have 20 albums worth of them for me to work through. You can get more information at jgonzalez.com. That's Gonzalez with Zs instead of Ss. Now, we did talk more about his pre-solo bands, pre-Drive-By Truckers bands. You can get that if you support the podcast at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. That'll be posted by Monday, April 12th. My next interview will be with Nels Klein, the lead guitarist for Wilco and a jazz guy. I've also talked recently to Steve Almas, and most recently to David Cross, who is the violinist in the 70s for King Crimson, and now runs the David Cross Band and does a lot of collaborations, an amazing progressive rock violin player, and also an actor, an educator, a very sharp, interesting guy. I hope you come back for that. You can be sure to get all of these episodes if you subscribe directly to the Nakedly Examined Music feed through nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And if you look at the upper right corner of that page, you'll see a widget that I've put up so you can leave a review, a rating easily for the podcast that will go to iTunes or Podchaser or CastBox. Please take advantage of that. I also want to call attention to my other podcast, Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast. I put up an episode recently there on rock and roll autobiographies with guest Laura Davis, who has appeared on this podcast. So you might like that. I hope you are getting vaccinated. I'm scheduled this Saturday to drive over an hour to get a single shot because I cannot wait to get out to, well, what music venues still exist, start doing band stuff again, maybe play a show or two. Who knows? But in whatever form, keep on musicking. Until next time, this is Marcos Miller signing off. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.